following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Um, you know, we all, part of being human beings, we have the uh, the ability and capacity to form ideas about ourselves, right? And uh, those ideas get shaped into our identity of who we think we are, right? And that can be, it's kind of a dangerous gift that God has given us. I'm thinking it would have been much better if we didn't have that capacity, right? If we just kind of lived our life oblivious about who we are. But the reality is we're very conscious and aware of, of who we are as people, and, uh, and from that, we, we, we shape ideas about ourselves, and we, we have a certain image that we want to project, right? And, and in most places of the world, the options would be kind of one of two. One uh, would be, and, and this would be the path of religion, would to be a good person. And it's interesting, if you, if you share the gospel really much with anybody, and you ask people, you know, if they believe in an afterlife and how they imagine they'll get there, most people will say, well, I think I will go to heaven because I am a good person, right? And most people have an identity and have shaped in their minds this concept of themselves as basically a good person. And compared to other people, you know, they're, they're better than somebody, so therefore, I'm a good person. And, and we try to project that image. Of course, there, there are another group of people who have seen um, either the impossibility of that or her, who are wise enough to get the hypocrisy of it. And they go, well, I'm not even going to try that. I'm going to project an image. I'm going to be, as my identity, a bad person. Right? I'm going to be a rebel. Because I think that all those good people are just hypocrites. And largely, they may be right. So they go the other direction. And they put on an image, an identity, a reputation. It's just a bad person. And they own that, and that's what they wear. Right? Well, as we look through this story, Jesus uh, talks about our identity, and he really calls us to neither of those. Right? Uh, neither an identity based on being a good person, nor an identity based on being a bad person. So let's look at the story and see, uh, I think, how Jesus would have us think about ourselves and the image he would want us to project as his followers. Uh, beautiful and amazing story. And it starts off with Jesus being invited to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And of course, the Pharisees were definitely in the category of those who were building a reputation around being good. And uh, we don't know exactly the, the scenario, but there's a couple clues. And it says that, that Jesus came in and reclined at table. Uh, and maybe you've seen pictures of this. It's the idea of, of actually laying down on your side and eating. And they would have a, a low table, low to the ground, and they would actually kind of gather around this table with their heads and their elbows kind of at the table and their feet sticking backwards. So that's the picture. Uh, this was not normal. Okay, some people think that this is how people in this time all ate. They're not true, okay? This is not the normal. But this would be the way you would eat at a special meal. So it was some kind of banquet or some kind of special meal uh, where probably Jesus was invited as a guest of honor as a traveling teacher. One scenario uh, is possible that Jesus had taught in the synagogue in the morning and the, 
Uh, Simon the, the Pharisee invites Jesus uh, over for a special Sabbath meal. Whatever the case, um, it, was, it was a unique meal, and it helps explain a lot of what goes on here. Because in this kind of setting, in this kind of meal, for one, uh, Jesus' feet were not under the table, so you don't see this lady like crawling under the table. It kind of kills the effect, you know, crawling under the table through the sea of legs. No, no his feet would have been, you know, stretched out away from the table. Um, secondly, in this kind of a special banquet or feast, uh, especially for somebody of status like Simon and somebody with wealth, it would have been a public affair. So there would have been the invited guests who came, and they had a place at the table. But as the dialogue and discussion was was going on, other people would have been welcome to come in. The doors would have been open. And given the crowd that was constantly following Jesus around, it's very likely that the house was packed full, that there were no empty places. So there's the the table and the people sitting, but the rest of the room on the outskirts of it would have been packed with people wanting to hear uh, what Jesus has to say as he interacts with this Pharisee. So the presence of the woman is not unusual, uh, that she could come into the house and, and be there. Um, but it says that this woman does come in, uh, and it describes her as a sinner. Now, the word that's used for sinner is not uh, the generic term, like we're all sinner, all have sinned. It wasn't just to say that, well, you know, she was like everybody else. It's a word that means she was known as a sinner, right? So this is a person whose reputation and whose identity was not as a good person. Everybody in the community knew this woman, and they knew her reputation, and it wasn't good, right? She was a a woman of ill repute, a bad reputation. That doesn't say what the bad reputation is, but chances are she uh, was known for some kind of immoral behavior. Maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she just was known as an adulteress. Uh, Maybe she was some kind of criminal. We don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say, and it's not important. But what's significant is that everybody in the community, including Simon, is well aware of what this woman is. She is not a churchgoer. She is not religious. She's not one who's built her identity as a good person. She is bad. She has a reputation, and it's public, right? Uh, So she comes in. Um, and uh, kind of comes into this probably very crowded room. And it says she comes bearing this expensive alabaster jar of perfume, and she uh, positions herself uh, behind Jesus at his feet. And, uh, and it describes just a very moving scene. It says, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with, with the ointment. Um, this would have been, I, mean, I, I would imagine, a startling scene. So you get the picture, they're having lunch, they're all kind of around this table, their feet are sticking up in different directions. This bad woman comes in, everybody knows, and she, she stands behind Jesus' feet, probably crouches down, and she begins to just sob. Right? And the word that's used here isn't just a, a few couple tears running down her cheeks. The idea is just a wailing sob. Now, not that it was loud, but, but you can just picture this woman begin and just burst into sobs. And the tears are just pouring. I mean, she is crying a lot. So much so that it says that, you know, the tears wet Jesus' feet. Not just a little, but I mean, she's just gushing tears and sobbing, right? And uh, probably started to get people's attention. Uh, 
And then it says that she, uh, as, as her tears soaked Jesus' feet, um, she takes her hair and she wipes his feet with them. In, in this day and in this time, women all wore their hair up. When you went out in public, you, you had it braided or in some way you had your hair up. And it was considered inappropriate, uh, immodest actually, to have your hair down. And actually there's other documents of uh, similar situations where somebody letting their hair down like this would have been considered a kind of an immoral act, right? But she, uh, she doesn't care. She, she's wet Jesus' feet. She has no towel to dry them with. So she loosens her hair and it falls down. And she takes her hair and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, right? Uh, it says, while, while this is going on, as she's weeping these, this gush of tears and she's wiping his feet, at the same time, it says she, she kisses his feet, uh, the Jews and in Middle Eastern cultures, kissing was a big deal, so much so that they had multiple words to describe it. Like, I'm pretty much sure in English, we've just got one word. You just, you know, kiss. But you know, there was a kiss of greeting. There was a kiss of affection. There was all different kinds of kisses in, in, uh, in, in Palestinian, Palestinian culture. So they had different words. And the words that's used here is not the kiss of greeting. It's a kiss that has the idea of, of repeated Tender kisses, again and again, right? So this whole time as she's weeping and sobbing and wiping his uh, feet with her hair, she's also constantly kissing his feet with tender affection. Right? So you get this picture of this woman just, just crying and, uh, and, and, and loving on Jesus, right? And, and we don't really know, like Simon, at the first part of the story, of course we kind of read to the end, you know, but... Nobody really knows what she's doing here. All right? They don't know why she's crying. They don't know why she's responding this way. They don't know, you know what is this about. Um, so she's kissing him and she's uh, loving on him. And then finally she takes this expensive alabaster jar of perfume and she, she anoints Jesus' feet. These particular kinds of jars uh, were commonly used for, for um, perfumes and expensive ointments like this. They didn't come with a lid. Right? So the way it worked is you broke the, you broke the jar, the, broke the container, and it was kind of a one-time use deal. You know, so you didn't, you didn't like just dabble a little bit and put the lid back on and save it. No, you busted it open and you pour it all out because you can't keep it anymore, right? So she takes this very expensive, costly perfume and she dumps the whole thing out on Jesus' feet and anoints his feet, right? Um, and, and, and the picture of this ongoing thing is that this isn't just like a 30-second deal. This is kind of a thing that kind of goes on for a little bit. As she's, as she's doing all this, it takes a few minutes at least. And she's kind of lost in her own world as she, as she blesses Jesus. Right? Well, of course, it does get the attention, as you could imagine, you know. It gets the attention of probably everybody in the room. And it gets the attention of Simon, and uh, he, in his mind, begins to evaluate what's going on here. And it's clear that he knows this woman. He knows her reputation. Um, and uh, it's interesting what doesn't, what doesn't strike him. Okay, so first of all, it's not a problem that she's there. Right? So that's where we kind of know this was probably some kind of public gathering. He's not offended, like, how did this crazy lady get in my house? Right? That's not an issue. Interestingly enough, he doesn't really remark at what she does. I would be like, well, that's just weird, you know. She's like kissing his feet a lot. And like, I've never seen that before. 
Well, in, in this culture, apparently this was not probably an everyday occurrence, but culturally it was not uh, off the radar. Uh, if we could put it kind of in our own context, think of a you know teeny bopper middle school teen at a boy concert, right? You know, up there screaming, weeping, fainting, you know, um, on the stage, being swooned. Okay, I mean, we kind of get that there's a context for that. Well, likewise, what she did wasn't so unusual or out there that there wasn't some context for it. So Simon is not troubled that she's there, troubled that she's weeping like a maniac and anointing Jesus' feet, because that probably would have been something that would have been, in some context, appropriate for somebody of Jesus' status that you wanted to honor. But what does get his attention is this. He says in verse 39, uh, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, so he's thinking these things, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Uh, So interestingly enough, Simon's thoughts have very, very little to do with the woman other than her reputation, and he knows about her. Right? So Simon, her, her fame is, is great enough that Simon, the Pharisee, knows whatever it is has given this woman a bad reputation. And he's thinking to himself, if Jesus were a true prophet, he would know also. Not because he's from this community. He wouldn't know the same way I know by her just general reputation in the community. He would know by divine revelation. And it's interesting, when you look back in the Old Testament, the lives of the prophets like Elijah... They were kind of cosmic that way. You know, they, they had this radar and they would know about people and God would reveal things. And, and there's lots of stories in the Old Testament of the prophets where God told them, so-and-so's coming and they're going to be wearing this and they're going to do this and you're going to say that, right? And he says, if he was a true prophet, Jesus would know. God would have told him. And, uh, and, 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 and the issue comes down to two things. First of all, that Jesus would have knowledge about her sinfulness. And secondly, if he was a true prophet... Like, like Simon the Pharisee thought a true good prophet should be, Jesus wouldn't allow this, right? Because she would be unclean. And for her to touch him would defile Jesus while he's eating in the presence of these holy people like the Pharisees. And so Simon's thinking to himself, you know, here I thought Jesus might be somebody... And uh, he's critical of Jesus. That's, that may be well why he invited him to kind of check him out, because the Pharisees were interested in Jesus, but they were interested from a critical evaluation standpoint. So, so, so Simon's saying to himself, oh, okay, I got my answer. Nah, this guy's not a prophet. He's just a normal guy. He's not ordained by God. This guy doesn't have a clue. He's just some nice but beguiled and foolish guy who has some nice things to teach. Um, but Jesus' response reveals uh, quite the opposite. Um, and and uh, uh, Jesus, in his response, shows himself a prophet and more. And in verse 40 it says, And Jesus said to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And uh, Simon answers, Okay, speak your mind. Uh, Jesus says, A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Uh, Two things about Jesus' response here that are very prophetic. First of all, 
Jesus makes it very clear that he knows exactly what Simon is thinking. Not only does he know about the woman, but he knows about Simon. Because Simon's been thinking this stuff in his head, and Jesus has read his thoughts. Jesus is not fooled. He you know, Simon's smiling on the outside and saying all kinds of polite things. Jesus knows what he's thinking in his heart. Right? God's revealed it to him. Jesus is a prophet, right? But on top of that, the parable reveals that Jesus also understands exactly what kind of woman this is. Jesus' response to her is not because he does not understand her reputation. God's also revealed that. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on with this woman. And in fact, it starts to reveal that Jesus, unlike everybody else in the room, Jesus actually knows why she's doing this. Uh, he is not fooled. He is not confused. He's a prophet. And he has God's revelation of exactly what's going on. Um, but Simon's not there yet. And so Jesus uh, tells this parable to um, very gently begin to deal with Simon's misconceptions both about who Jesus is and about uh, the right response towards this woman's sin. And the, the, the parable is a simple one. He says there's two people who owe money. And to put it in Thai terms, we will say that one owes 16,000 baht and the other one owes about 160,000 baht. Right? So both not huge sums of money, but not little either. Um, if you're a Thai person and you owe 16,000 baht, you're not going to pay it off in a day, most likely. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you owe 160,000 baht, you may never pay it off, or it's going to be a long, long time. And it comes out that neither one of these guys are able to pay the debt. Uh, they're struggling. They can't make the payments, small or large, and they're both falling behind in their payments. Now, uh, to, to, to not overlook the significance of what happens next in the story, imagine you, okay, and you've got credit card debt or some kind of bank loan, and um, whether it's 16000 or 160000 you you pick the number. But you owe money, and you're having some difficult times financially, and one month you can't make your payment, right? Uh, what does the credit card company do? Do they look at your situation and say, oh, you know, it appears that poor Tim is struggling financially and he can't make his debt. We'll help him off a little bit by lowering his interest rate. Is that what they do? No. No. You miss once and you go from that special promotional 4.9% interest to 29%, right? It's like, oh, you missed once, we're going to zap you, right? And we're going to charge you the maximum amount of interest we can because you missed one time, right? I know from experience, right? I know how this works, right? So now instead of, you know, it being possible for you to pay off the 160000 baht debt, now with the interest, you can't even make the interest payment anymore. You're in trouble, Right? So the next month rolls around and you're still struggling. You can't pay. You miss another payment. You miss another payment. And what happens? Well, they start sending you cards, special cards, because they love you. They say things like, if you don't pay up, we're sending you to collections. Final notice. Right? Warning. Danger. Right? And, you, and they start making phone calls and saying really loving and caring, kind things to you. Like, you know, do you know what it looks like inside a jail? You're about to go there. Right? So that's normal. And that would have been normal in Jesus' day, right? When you get behind with your, your creditor, they start pushing you to pay up because they want their money. 
And in fact, uh, most credit card companies have a statement in their credit card that says if you fall behind, they can actually demand full payment all at once. Right? How's that? You know, you're you can't even make one payment, and they get nervous. They say we want the whole thing paid in full, or we're sending you to collections. Right? Okay, that's normal. Um, but what happens here? The creditor does what? They, they, they say they're remarkable. They say, well, it's apparent you guys are struggling financially. You know what? We want to just cancel your debt. Right? Uh, who does that? Well, nobody. Right? No creditor does that. Uh, and and uh, you've got to catch that in this story because to miss that is going to miss the story. Right? It's, it's shocking. What creditor does that? Oh, you're behind in your bills? Don't worry about it. We're going to just cancel the whole debt. And that's what happens. And in fact, the word there for forgive is not the word forgive, the typical word forgive. It's actually a form of the word grace. Uh, And it means um, to do something pleasant or agreeable, to do a favor for someone, uh, to show someone self-kind or benevolent, to grant forgiveness, to give graciously and give freely. So this is a creditor who says, oh, you know, I just want, I'm a good person, I'm a benevolent, kind-hearted soul, and I just feel for your struggle. I am forgiving your debt in full. And I'm not just delaying the payment, I'm canceling it. Right? Um, how would you feel if your 160000 baht credit card bill, you know, you got that letter in the mail and the, and the credit card company says, you know... We just heard you're a missionary serving in Thailand. We just want to bless you and pay off your debt, right? How do you feel about that? Pretty good, right? You feel pretty good and hugely unexpected. Um, so then Jesus asks the, uh, turns to Simon and he asks the simple question, uh, who of these two will love more? Who will love more? It's an, an interesting word there that Jesus chooses the term love. Uh, and, and in so doing, Jesus, uh, in a small way, defines what, what love is. Love is in part, or in, in large part, gratitude. Right? Our love for God is in some degree connected with gratitude. And our heart and our willingness to be grateful and thankful for what God has done for us is what love is. And so... Uh, Jesus, of course, is, is describing what, and identifying why this woman's doing all this. She's, she's showing, out, showing this incredible act of love and affection and kindness. And Jesus is identifying. She's doing it because she has been forgiven much. Right? She has experienced incredible grace in her life. And this expression of affection and love is simply her gratitude for this incredible debt that has been paid. Um, In this statement and in this parable, Jesus also reveals, uh, and later on he affirms it, that that he indeed has authority to forgive. Jesus has the right and power and authority to forgive sin. Um, And uh, while we don't know what's happened before this, Jesus does. And we don't know if he's had some contact with her, if he's had some conversation, or if God's just revealed to uh, Jesus what's going on. But he's identified that this woman's doing all this because she has experienced forgiveness. Uh, 
We don't know if Jesus was preaching and she heard his message, offering forgiveness, if he somehow healed her. And like others, Jesus said, you know, your sins are forgiven. We don't know. But it's clear that she has identified Jesus' right and authority to forgive sins. So however Jesus did it, he communicated to her clearly that he was canceling her debt. And so she comes uh, later uh, with this act of worship, of gratitude, of love, this expression of compassion for Jesus uh, because she has experienced forgiveness of sins. Um, and the, the passage continues on and it explains, it explains, Jesus really interprets her actions as the radical effects of forgiveness. Uh, so while up to this point nobody in the room knew what it was about, Jesus is going to reveal to Simon, to everybody there, he's going to interpret her actions as the radical effects of, of experiencing forgiveness. So know what he says in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, uh, he said to Simon. It's interesting that he does this. So he looks at the woman who's behind him. So, okay, so Jesus got to kind of turn away from Simon, and he's looking at the woman. But he's speaking to Simon. Right? So he addresses Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Right? Take a good look at her. I entered your house... And you didn't give me any water for my feet. Right? Now, uh, we know from, from, uh, from John's account that it was customary when you came into a house for a banquet like this uh, to extend the courtesy of washing their feet. And that wasn't required. Um, most, most commentators, scholars would say that he wasn't being necessarily rude, but he also wasn't like, going out of his way to show hospitality either because he neglected this this, uh, this custom of the day. But she, on the other hand, has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Right? She's washed my feet with her very tears. You gave me no kiss. And of course, we know, like I said, part of Jewish culture, it was very common when people would come in, you meet somebody, instead of shaking hands, you kiss them. Okay? I'm saying let's stick with the hand, handshaking thing. Okay? You know, I'm just feeling a lot more comfortable with that. Um, you kind of got to have some space thing here. You know, this, this phase, this, this, yeah, 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 no. Right? But that day, it was customary. Now, again, it wasn't rude to deny that, but it also wasn't showing great hospitality either. Okay, Simon, from the very beginning, be- beginning, showed himself to be somewhat distant and cool towards Jesus. He doesn't welcome him with the kiss of, of greeting that would have been acceptable in that day. But what does this woman do? It says, from the time she came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. She has showered me with welcoming, tender, affectionate kisses. Right? So Jesus is starting to show, paint this picture of Simon who has very little care for Jesus versus this woman who shows incredible love and affection. Uh, he says, you did not anoint my head with oil. Again, a custom that was common, not required, but it would have been, again, another piece of, of gracious hospitality. Um, again, you know, please don't pour oil on my head. <laughs> All right? My hair has enough problems as it is. I don't need greasy hair. Right? Apparently in Jesus' day, that was cool. I don't know. Um, Simon doesn't do that. Doesn't do it. Um, but she um, has anointed my feet with, with perfume. 
right? Um, there's three things about her actions that really show what I, what I would consider radic- the radical effects upon her uh, of her response to what Jesus has given to her in for- forgiveness. First thing, her, uh, it has produced in her heartfelt affection, right? Um, the, the, Jesus talks about what would, be, what would be the norm in terms of kind of just the, the standard of, of hospitality, right? But she goes way beyond that. She's not just being hospitable. She's showing from the depths of her heart a very emotional response to, what, uh, to who Jesus is. Right? She is sobbing rivers of tears, um, an uncontrollable flow of tears. She is uh, kissing him with unceasing kisses of pure and tender affection. Right? This is a person whose heart has been radically turned upside down by what she has experienced. And this is coming, this is, this is something that comes out of the heart. And she's not just going through some kind of empty motions here. She is very emotional, and it is from her heart that she is doing these things. Um, the experience of forgiveness has, has put a love in her heart that is bursting with the most tender and pure affection for Jesus. Uh, it has indeed caused her to love him much. Uh, which is what Jesus says. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And here's a person whose heart and affections are uh, inflamed with love for Christ. Secondly, uh, it has caused and produced in her just some extreme conduct, right? some extreme behavior. Right. She, she goes to kind of the ends here. She's not reserved in what she's doing. Now, like I said, uh, for her to go up and anoint Jesus' feet and, and, and uh, do some of that would have been actually more culturally acceptable and normal than, than we would appreciate. But nonetheless, there are some things that she did that were out there and very bold. First of all, that she, knowing full well how she's, you know, her reputation in the community, she knows who she is. And she knows how all these religious righteous people think about her, right? So for her to go into Simon's house, uh, not because she wasn't welcome, but because of who she was, she wasn't welcome. It was a very bold action. And she took a great risk in doing this because she knew her reputation. She knew how she would have been viewed by everybody there. And for her, for her to bow down and start t- uh, touching Jesus and, and showing this affection, there was a very likely chance that, that they could have thrown her out into the street and humiliated and embarrassed her even further. Uh, in fact, you kind of get that Simon's, you know, Simon's thinking about this, right? Um, but she does it. She puts her reputation even further on the line by going there. Um, she touches Jesus. Um, and again, given her reputation, um, that touch was a risk, right? She was, she was taking extreme actions to and boldness to to touch Jesus, to kiss him. Um, probably the most startling thing that she does is she lets down her hair. As I said, in that culture, very inappropriate. Right? She's, she's, she's pushing the limits here. Um, but her heart, her motives, her, her reason for doing it is pure love. Right? She, she is not thinking about custom. She's not thinking about herself or her image. She just wants to love Jesus. So she goes to extreme lengths... Um, 
and she's kissing her feet over and over again, right? She doesn't just give one kiss, but she is extreme as she pours out her affection. Thirdly, uh, her worship, her adoration is costly, right? She doesn't give something that's cheap. She finds one of the most valuable things she has. We don't know, it doesn't say, in this passage, it doesn't say what the, what the vial is worth, but uh, in, a, in a similar account, probably not the same story in John where the woman anoints Jesus' head at his, uh, right before he goes to the cross. Probably not the same account. The, the details are too different. Uh, but we know that in that account, the, um, the, the vial of perfume is worth a fortune. And oftentimes, uh, this would be a, like an heirloom treasure, right? Um, whatever it was, it was costly. It was costly. And she pours it all out for him. Uh, showing her love and affection and devotion. She holds nothing back for herself, and she joyfully gives all to Jesus with abundant generosity. Jesus is saying here that this is what uh, someone who's forgiven much, this is the kind of thing it will produce, this is the kind of response it it produces in a person's life like this. Uh, Jesus says, Uh, To whom is forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. Um, And in fact, in verse 47 and 48, he goes on to say to her, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Then those who are at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, it's really easy to misread these verses and misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. You could read it this way. Because she has shown such love and affection, therefore, Jesus said, well, your sins are forgiven because you have loved me so much. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Right? He, he says quite the opposite. He says, because your sins have been forgiven much, you have done this. In other words, Jesus is saying here, all of this woman's actions are proof or evidence of what has already taken place in her heart. In fact, when Jesus says to her in verse 49, uh, um, verse 48, your sins are forgiven, it's really important we notice the verb tense there, which in English messes it all up, sadly. Um, Because it looks like a present tense. It looks like Jesus is saying, well, okay, now... Your sins are forgiven. But the verb is a special verb tense we don't have in English, the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means an action that's been done and completed in the past, but the effects of it are ongoing. So he's saying, your sins have been fully forgiven already. Right? So at some point before she entered the room, God had forgiven her sins. Right? As she had responded to Jesus' message, she had received salvation and forgiveness already. And so she came in as one whose sins had been forgiven and she had experienced the lifting of that burden. And Jesus is saying to you, you are in a continual state. Your your state now is not sinner, but forgiven. Your identity now is no longer wicked, sinful, immoral person with a, a, a bad repute. Now, your reputation, your identity is forgiven, right? That's who you are now, forgiven. Uh, and, and he's saying that the proof of that is her acts, right? her love, her heart that she has poured out to Christ 
and grace and kindness. Um, and there's a corollary to this, right? There's a corollary. Because the, the parable and what Jesus is saying is about her, but it's also about Simon, right? What is Jesus saying about Simon? Well, you didn't really even show me basic hospitality. You couldn't wash my feet. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't on my head with oil. And I wasn't asking for it, right? I, I don't demand it. I don't require it. But, but Simon, what does it say about your salvation? What does it say about how much you have been forgiven? Well, it says you haven't been forgiven very much. It says you don't understand the grace of God. He says to the woman, go in peace because your safe faith has saved you. Simon and his buddies are going, who is this Jesus that he can forgive people? Right? The woman has faith in the authority and power of Christ to forgive these guys doubt that Jesus has the capacity to do that. She is transformed by what she receives through faith. These guys are unmoved and unchanged. Um, so what's the point of all this? Well, it is about love by degrees. And by degrees, I don't mean, you know, like it's on a scale of, which it is kind of on a scale that we love God a little or a lot. But really, it's more like this. Is our love for Jesus cold, or is our love for Jesus hot? And in this story, it's clear whose love is hot and whose love is dead cold like ice. Right? And Jesus makes it clear that the difference, the only, the, the main factor is one understands grace and forgiveness, and the other clearly does not. Um, what is the temperature of our affection for Jesus? Right? If we could put a thermometer on our heart instead of under our tongue, and we could measure somehow uh, our love for Christ, do we have a fever or are we so cold we're borderline dead? Right? And what do we want to be? Right? What do we want to be? Uh, I have great confidence that all of us here want our affection and our love for Christ to be on fire. Right? be a fevered passion for Christ. But is it at the moment? Right? We, we want to have that kind of love and affection. And if we're moved at all by the story, it's a good sign that we want this. Right? We want to have this kind of deep love and affection for Jesus. This heart, you know, maybe we're not really so much compelled to kiss his feet, but not our culture. But in our culture and in our life and in our our way of doing things, that, that there would be within us this, this heart, this motive, this intention to love Jesus with this kind of fervor and zeal. Um, but the reality is, as, as Revelations points out, it's easy for our, our love, our first love to die. And if you think back in your spiritual journey, chances are when you first came to Christ and you had... Yesterday, been living under the burden of, and the debt of sin, and you knew it was weighing you down. And you met Jesus, and you felt that burden lifted. You know, we experienced that, didn't we? And we experienced being in love with Jesus, who gave us new life and forgave us. And like this woman, we were bubbling over, gushing everywhere. You remember those days? Right? Remember? We all have different experiences. I know one lady. Uh, she said when she first came to Christ, she cried literally nonstop for three days. Three solid days. She couldn't, she couldn't do anything. 
couldn't even eat. She just cried for three solid days. Now, we're not all that emotional, but hopefully when you came to Christ, there was some emotion. There was some sense of that. But what happens to that? Well, it seems like it tends to grow cold. Right? It's easy to lose that first love. Well, why is that? Well, I think that, uh, the reason is that, uh, that Jesus highlights here comes down to the idea of our identity. You know, when we came to Christ, we had identity as a bad person. We got saved because we realized we were sinners, because we knew we had failed God. We knew we needed forgiveness. And so we come to Christ and we, we, we have faith in his death for us, uh, the penalty that he paid on the cross, which, by the way, you know, this woman, she, she was like this, just that Jesus had forgiven her. He has no idea what he's going to do to purchase that forgiveness, right? Imagine what this poor woman does when Jesus dies on the cross, right? Um, probably un- unraveled her, right? When she saw what, what Jesus actually did to purchase forgiveness. We know all that, right? But what happens? Well, I think what happens is this. We, we go from sinner to saved, and we, we re- start remaking our identity from a bad person to what? A good person, because everybody knows Christians are supposed to be what? Good people. Right? And we become what? Well, in this story, who's the good people? The Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees. Um, how many of us want to be Pharisees? Well, hmm, I'm not so sure about that, right? But in this story, and actually throughout the book of Luke, the Pharisees are the good people. And Jesus says the good people are not really so great, right? And Jesus is, is, starts pointing to this reality that if your identity is based on being a good person, what's going to happen is your love for Christ will begin to grow cold, right? The goal of the Christian life is not to form an identity as a good person. Now, if you've been sleeping the whole sermon and you just woke up, you know, this is what happens to me. This happens to me all the time. People, they hear these phrases, you know, they write it down and they go home. And Tim said, Christians aren't supposed to be good. <laughs> okay, it's not exactly what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is our identity, our being is not to be an identity of look at how good I am. Okay, Jesus wants to shatter that. And he does not want that to be who we are. Okay. This woman's identity and what has so radically transformed her is not an identity of going from a bad person to a good person. It's from going from a bad person to what? A forgiven person. Okay, the secret is not to have an identity of being good, but an identity of being grateful. Right? That should be our identity. Uh, we should be people who are fully aware and conscious that we are sinners. Past, present, and future. Right? Now, hopefully, what we were as sinners in the past is, was, was, was way more than what we are now. Okay, hopefully. Okay, hopefully, you can say, I'm not quite as much of a sinner as I used to be, I hope. Right? But we should be quite aware of the fact that we're not perfect. We still mess up. And it is something of our identity. But it doesn't mean that we go around feeling guilty all the time. Right? It doesn't mean, yeah, I sin, I mess up all the time, I fail, and I feel so bad, I feel so guilty. Right? That's not it either. Okay, God is not asking you to have an identity of a guilty person. That should not be who we are. 
we, we don't wear our sinfulness like a badge. Oh, yeah, you went to jail five times. I went to, I went to jail ten and killed 20 people, you know, for breakfast. That's not the point, right? It's not that we have an identity of, of an ex-convict, even though, in a sense, we are. We, we are reformed from that bad person. But rather, the focus is on the grace that God has poured out that has forgiven our sin. And now we can feel grateful continually because of what Jesus has done and is continually doing to forgive, right? To forgive. Uh, So we have an identity that's based on being grateful, not on being good. Uh, Does that make sense? Now, the the truth is, and with this woman is clear evidence of this, if we understand forgiveness and we have a new identity that is continually grateful, will we become better people? Yeah, right? Sin, you know, is going to be much more painful for us when we, when we recognize the price that was paid to redeem us from that sin. It will be transforming. Yeah, we'll become better people, good people, right? But that's not how we're to see ourselves. We're to see ourselves as those who have been forgiven and who have been radically transformed by grace. Uh, so what do we do with this? Well, here's a couple... Uh, take away things. Uh, I really believe that if we want to keep our first love, right? if we want to rekindle in our hearts this kind of passion for Christ, what Jesus is teaching here is that we need to be people who regularly contemplate grace, right? who make it part of our daily spiritual disciplines to remember grace and forgiveness. Um, you know, as we think back in our life, are there times when you have felt overwhelmed by God's grace? Maybe it's salvation or since, hopefully since then, right? When you've been struck anew with what it meant for God to forgive you. Um, you know, when you really have cried tears of joy over what Jesus has done for you. Those should be regular occurrences in our life. I'm not saying it should happen every day. But uh, if we contemplate grace, those should be common in our life. So how do we do that? Well, you know, we need to be thinking often and much of God's grace. And, and to start with that process, we need to be honest about our own sin and past, present, and future guilt. And that we have disappointed God. And again, it is not that we dwell on that, but we have to own that. Um, and then we need to contemplate the grace and by faith appropriate God's full of power and, if, uh, and forgiveness for those sins. Right? So this needs to be part of our daily Christian experience. Um, so what does that look like in your life? Well, uh, confession should be a regular part of our spiritual disciplines. Right? When was the last time you had a time of confession before God? Um, now, if, if you have a, a, a sin that you battle with a lot and you feel like you lose a lot, you may do this often, Right? Um, you fail and, and, you, can, and you confess. But I, and, I, and that's good. We should, right? We should appropriate God's forgiveness in that. But I think even for those of us who, who are in a different place in life where we've, we've kind of beaten some of those demons in our life, because um, here's the problem. Like the woman, there are socially unacceptable sins, right? That everybody says are bad. Lie, murder, doing drugs, you know, immorality, 
And as Christ comes in your life and transforms, and some of those things aren't so much a problem anymore, it's easy to think, well, you know, I am a pretty good person. You know, I haven't murdered anybody in, gosh, the longest time, you know. Um, uh, and we can start feeling pretty good about ourselves because we're measuring ourselves against kind of social norms. But the reality is that, that sin is much deeper and oftentimes much more subtle. When was the last time you were proud? <laughs> when was the last time you were even just a tiny little bit selfish? Right? How much in the last day have you really loved everyone around you like God loves them? How much have you really served everyone in your life as Jesus serves us? Right? We start thinking about our life in those terms, right? Maybe we do have more to confess. When was the last time you doubted God and you didn't really trust Him? Right? You took things into your own hand and you did a good thing, heroic and brave, but you did it because you weren't trusting God. Right? Those are the issues that I find I have daily, daily to confess. Right? So confession should be one of our constant spiritual disciplines. Uh, and part of that, if we are really honest, how well do we see our own sin? Right? Okay, those are the sins I'm aware of. How many sins do you have you don't even see? Okay, Simon was clueless, and Jesus was trying to help him see the blind spots in his life. Okay, what are the blind spots in your life? What are the things that you are doing that are blatant sin everybody else sees? He goes, wow, and you don't see, right? Are you, are you asking people you trust around you Maybe not your spouse, maybe. Uh, point, please point out those sins in my life. Right? Um, are there people in your life that, that can speak into your life when they see? And, and will you receive that? Are you humble enough to receive that? Um, yeah, as we close, what are the practical steps you can be taking to help you experience God's abundant grace and forgiveness? Regular confession asking input for those blind spots in your life, and contemplating God's grace. Uh, whether that means a scripture that reminds you of what God has done for you, uh, reflecting on the cross, right? What, what, what are you doing daily to contemplate grace? Um, You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.